Father, that's what we want. We want to be close to you. Your desire is for the same. All we have to do is seek you, and your word says, and we shall find you. So I pray that you would help us to diligently seek you. We're so thankful to be saved. We're so thankful that we can, that we can know who you are. And then, of course, once we know who you are, you, you've made yourself known to us in a way that you actually care about us. And we're so thankful for that. Thank you so much for loving us. Thank you so much for your son, Jesus. Came and paid the price for my penalty. Says for the penalty of the whole world. Took that on himself willingly. And we're thankful for that today. Uh, we would pray that you'd help us to live in a way that, that reflects that. Because we know that, that we've been purchased. We're now uh, are proclaiming that we are something else. And we are someone else in you. And the world is watching to see if this is real. And so I pray that you'd help the world to see us, our friends in our circle uh, uh, friends, our, our, our workplaces, our, our schools, wherever we're at, God, I pray that people would see you in us. We look forward to finding out uh, what you have for us today from your word. We pray that you'd give Pastor Justin um, your words today as, um, as we listen intently to what you want to say to each one of us. So I pray that you'd speak into our hearts now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's uh, Daylight Savings. Aren't you glad you made it? Yeah? I, uh, I had a horrible dream last night. I was telling first service. I uh, dreamt that I overslept, showed up here in my sweats. I was searching for somebody to swap clothes with me so that I could preach, but uh, everybody was pretty content with the clothing they were wearing, and uh, I woke up nervous but came on time, so... I'm glad that I made it. I'm glad that you're here this morning. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. We are entering into the final two chapters of the book of Luke. Final two chapters of the book of Luke this series, and then uh, we have one more. We're heading to the glorious resurrection of Christ. That is that moment uh, that we champion. That is um, the, the thing that declares that Christ has power over the grave, that everything that he is about to go through, he did on our behalf, not because he was powerless, but because he is all-powerful. He is the only one that can set us free. Amen? So we get to see now how this unfolded, but it's not just that Christ was so great, it's also how great of a mess that we are. And what we will see in Luke chapter 23 is that as messed up as the people were who condemned him to the cross... 2,000 years later, we make decisions the same way that they do. That's what I want us to drink in. I want us to see that. In the book of Revelation, in chapters 2 and 3, you will see seven different churches. There are uh, churches that are uh, receiving letters. The Spirit of God through John has penned to them letters highlighting significant things to them. Um, the churches are Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and a famous one, Laodicea. To the church at Ephesus, he reminds them that they need to be once again in love with Christ. He reminds them of their first love. As they were going through in their faith journey, they started out strong, but began to look at all of the mess that was around them more than they were looking to the Savior, and he reminds them to look to their first love. To Smyrna, he highlights their suffering. To Pergamum, 
uh, he reminds them that false teachers in their midst is a problem. It will taint what they are preaching. Thyatira, that place of continual sacrifice. By the way, the, the thing that we need to remember is that there is nothing left for us to do in order to be saved. It's completely finished in Christ. Amen? Amen. Everything has been accomplished by Christ. There is no more sacrifice for us in order to complete salvation. The only sacrifice comes as a, a desire to give ourselves back on that altar to Christ to say, because of all that you've done, I want to give this to you, but it is not in order to be saved. Everything is complete in Christ. And then there is Sardis and Philadelphia, the church that was famous, as he told them, that because of your faithfulness, I'll keep you from the hour of tribulation. Because you put your faith in me, you're an overcomer. And then he speaks to Laodicea. Here's this one church where as they are gathered, churches, or Christ is on the outside. As they are gathered together, they are consistently unsure, undecisive, and unmoved in their faith. The Laodiceans were famous for leaving God out of the equation. He says, I wish that you were either hot or cold. It doesn't mean that I wish that you were good or bad. He just says, I wish that whatever you were, you were refreshing. If it's hot coffee, you want it hot, right? If it's a hot day and you need a cold drink, I wish that you were cold. But lukewarm isn't satisfying in any situation. He says, I wish that you were satisfying, that you were all there in any place. He says, but you are not. You're lukewarm all the time. You never know what to be in any scenario. Why is it that this church couldn't make decisions? Why is it that this church was always lukewarm? Why is it that this church is sitting there in their gathering, worshiping, but Christ is on the outside? I think we get the key from their name. Laodicea translated means the will of the people. The will of the people. What you will find is that the will of the people, from the time of Moses all the way forward, whenever the people gather and they come up with their own mind, you can bet that it's the wrong decision. Gather a group of men together. You'll get a whole bunch of different opinions. But when they gather together as a group and decide this is the right way to go, you've got to be careful. The will of the people. What we see today is by the will of the people. In Luke chapter 23, Christ is delivered over. It was the will of the people to see him crucified. Now, God would allow him to go through that process in order for us to be saved. God is still sovereign. But in this scenario, we see the will of the people got truth dead wrong. And in 2,000 years, our decision-making has not changed or improved. Luke chapter 23. Now, normally we have you stand as we read this passage, but because it's 25 verses, it's a longer section, I want you to get your Bibles out. I want you to uh, look at it in your own Bible. If you don't have one, I want you to uh, look on with uh, somebody near you. I want you to see this in the scriptures for yourself, and I want you to consider, instead of wondering, okay, when is he going to stop reading, I want you to actually look in this passage and see not only what happened here, but begin to assess how are things the same today. The scripture says this in verse 1, then the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate. Now, this is the religious leaders. They brought him before Pilate. They were done with their part of the trial. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. 
So Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and said, It is as you say. And Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they kept on insisting, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. And when Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod who himself was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him, and he was hoping to see some sign performed by him. And he questioned him at some length, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently. And Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressing him in a gorgeous robe, sent him back to Pilate. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another on that very day, for before they had been enemies with each other. Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers of the people, and he said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites people into rebellion. And I have examined him before you, and I found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you have made against him. Nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him, and I'll release him. Now he was obliged to release to them at the feast one prisoner. But they cried out together, saying, Away with this man, release for us Barabbas. He was one who had been thrown into prison for insurrection made in the city and for murder. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. But they kept on calling, saying, crucify, crucify him. And when he said to them the third time, why, what evil has this man done? I found in him no guilt demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. But they were insistent with loud voices asking that he be crucified, and their voices began to prevail. And Pilate pronounced sentence, and their demand was granted. And he released the man they were asking for, who, they'd thrown, who was thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, but he delivered Jesus to their will. Do you believe that actually happened? It did. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us today, uh, not just to read this passage in its context, that's important, to be able to see that this is a moment where Christ was finally condemned and everyone in every quarter had abandoned him. There was no place uh, where truth was prevailing. There's no place where there was any strength to be found. We see that in this context, but also, Father, um, I pray that you will help us to see how we make decisions in much the same way. That still today, truth barely has an opportunity to rise up. Very few seek truth for its own sake. We still operate by the will of the people. We still operate by popular opinion. We still operate based on our own personal proclivities and irritations rather than on what is best. Father, help us to see that we are like them, that we too would have condemned Christ. And I pray that you would help us to seek truth in a different fashion, to stand for truth by the power of your Spirit today in a different way, to live differently, to choose Christ instead of insurrection. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
uh, in your notes, Pontius Pilate had a serious problem. What was he going to do with Jesus? Jesus had already appeared before the Roman governor once that morning for judgment. After hearing the accusations against him and after interrogating the prisoner for himself, Pilate declared his judicial verdict. Jesus was not guilty. The problem was that some of his people still wanted Jesus dead. And thus they would not accept the legal decision. So what was Pilate going to do with this innocent man? As we see Pilate struggle with this dilemma, we are confronted with nearly the same question that confounded him. What will we do with Jesus? As we see Jesus go through these trials in Luke's gospel, we need to reach a verdict about him in our own minds and hearts. Will we declare his saving innocence or will we try to push him away as Pilate did? Now remember, the last couple of weeks we've covered the other two groups that had rejected him. In the first week, we talked about Peter who had an opportunity to stand, remember Peter, with all of his glory and all of his excitement, standing saying, Jesus, I would follow you to prison and even to death. And Jesus says, man, it's it's just a couple of hours. You're going to be calling down curses from heaven saying, I never knew you. You're going to say it three times before the cock crows. And sure enough, three different times, then he hears that crowing And Jesus turns and looks at him and makes eye contact. How horrifying would that moment have been? He had denied his Savior. And then we have the religious leaders who also are rising up, not wanting to know whether or not he's truly the Messiah, not wanting to know whether or not he is truly Lord, but only concerned about their position and power and irritated about what they were about to lose. These two groups who knew better had rejected him. And now we come to the third, the final group, the final appeal, this group of politicians. What I want us to do uh, is to remember, once again, and I'm going to keep plugging this statement, we do not make decisions any better today, 2,000 years removed, than they did. The key to understand is that in the court of human opinion, truth often takes a backseat to emotion and pride. Truth often takes a backseat to emotion and pride. First thing we got to see is the religious mob. Now, by the way, before we just very quickly say, oh, yeah, those terrible people, I want us to see, I was talking with a couple of pastor friends of mine, and they had listed some statements uh, before in their congregation. They said that people had a hard time deciding whether or not they were for or against those statements. So I'm just going to ask you a couple of statements and ask you, are you for or against them? Now, I don't want you to say it out loud. Just in your own heart, you can uh, decide whether or not you believe the statement is a good one, a worthy one, or not. The first statement is this. We have a moral responsibility to protect God's creation for generations to come. Do we agree with that statement or not? Nancy Pelosi said that statement. Does it change your opinion internally? Another statement. Do you agree or disagree with this statement? What separates winners from losers is how a person reacts to each new twist of fate. Do you have fortitude? Do you agree with that or disagree. Who said it? Donald Trump. Found a good picture. (laughs) How about this statement? See whether or not you agree or disagree with this statement. Billy Graham is the chief servant of Satan in America. Agree or disagree? Who was that made by? Jerry Falwell, who was at the time the leader of the moral majority. Now, I know what you're thinking. I hope he doesn't put any more statements on the screens. 
At first, uh, first service, we had people answering out loud, and it got real quiet by the end. <laughs> Here's the thing. We have two controversial leaders who make a statement that you might be able to actually get behind, and one religious leader who made a statement that is so far wrong, there's no way that you can stand behind it. Here are these statements that are standing here. It's the same situation that we have and just as controversial today. In fact, one of the problems I'm going to submit to you is that we quite often don't know whether or not we agree with a statement. We cannot judge it based on the statement alone or based on the merits of an argument. We don't know whether or not we agree with it till we know who is behind it. Do you know that? That is not the way that you discover truth. You don't follow all of the lemmings to truth, okay? That's not what Scripture ever declares. But here is the concern that we still have today. If somebody that we don't agree with makes a statement that we do agree with, we can't agree with it because we don't agree with them. I won't say that again because I'll get myself tongue-tied. The problem that we have is we follow the mob even today. We do not judge truth based on its merits alone. In fact, uh, we were just talking about this as an elder team during the course of this last week when we go through the process of what it means to be an elder and the qualifications for an elder. The one is to be able to deal with righteousness, with truth. Do we evaluate every single situation based on its merits alone rather than based on the character of the individual or history or all these other things? Do we just look at the facts that are in front of us and judge rightly before God? That is the definition of a godly person, somebody who can just look at these moments. Truth did not prevail because the mob did. We do not decide any differently. We are bent like they are. How did the religious mob make decisions? I want you to notice that in order to get their way, they start by promoting nationalism. They appeal to nationalism. Verse 2, they began to accuse him, Jesus saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now remember that all Roman leaders at that time were nationalistic. They were saying that Rome is superior to everybody else. That was the, the, the rule. In order to lead, you had to believe they were superior and all other nations were inferior. Nationalism is the belief that your own country is better than all others. It's important not to confuse nationalism with patriotism. Patriotism is a healthy pride in your country that brings about feelings of loyalty and a desire to help other citizens. Nationalism is the belief that your country is superior without question or doubt and should be put primarily over all others. This was Rome. Rome believed this. And they come at them. Now remember, this is the group of religious leaders who said, we've never been conquered by anybody. We've never been under anybody else's rule or authority. They were irritated that Jesus said you should pay taxes to Caesar. Jesus saying, render to Caesar what's due to Caesar. Render to God what's due to God. He didn't follow these things. They're lying outright. But what are they poking at? They're poking at nationalism. They're saying, he's not falling in line. He doesn't believe that Rome is the greatest. It's a concern that comes up even today. Roman leaders were required to do this, and Pilate sees right through their declaration. Are you really a king? It's interesting that the last word that we hear from Christ during all of these trials, he goes silent after this, is actually ambiguous. It actually says, it is as you say. In other words, Pilate, you already have all of everything you need to make a decision. You know. 
And Pilate looks at him, he says, well, man, this isn't the way that an insurrectionist acts. He's had to put those down over and over and over again in this city. This is the way that a gentle leader acts. I find no fault in him. Nationalism didn't work, so then they employed an angry public demonstration. Verse 5, but they kept on insisting, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea. Verse 10, and the chief priests and the scribes were standing there, accusing him vehemently. Now they're getting bigger and louder in their demonstrations. Verse 21, but they kept on calling out, saying, crucify, crucify him. In verse 23, but they were insistent with loud voices, asking that he be crucified, and their voices began to prevail. In other words, what he's saying is the mob became so intense and so aggravated and so overwhelming that even Pilate, in all of his nationalistic zeal, says, man, I can't put this down unless I kill this guy. Shaking their fists, shouting at their leaders, trying to persuade them just by the mob, the mass that shows up. It's the last time that's happened in 2,000 years. We haven't seen anything like it here, have we? Angry mobs trying to shout, trying to persuade their leaders to change their thinking. This is the religious mob. But finally, they took swipes at their political leader's pride. It starts right in verse 2, and then it follows all the way through. But hey, if you really are a follower of Caesar, if you're really a friend to the king, you're going to put this guy down. And all the way through, they're testing them, saying, are you really a leader? Are you really a man? Are you really the one that can do this? Social media is king at this, isn't it? This is where we see it even today. But do you know one of the things that they're applying is the the age-old issue of pride. People that are in the public eye consistently are concerned about floundering or losing their power, losing the ability that they have to sway people. Uh, On a secondary, just a popular side of it, Whitney Houston, a short while before her death, was giving an interview to Diane Sawyer, and they were talking about the fact that she had at one time been the greatest voice in in all the nations. She was lifted up as uh, one of the greatest voices of our generation. And then has a downfall as she enters into drugs and struggling with those things and then tries to make a comeback and fails miserably. And Diane Sawyer was interviewing her about that failed return. The pain and frustration that she experienced when her voice had cracked and where her, it was evident that she did not have what she once did. At one point in the interview, she turns to Miss Sawyer, this article says, and asked, have you ever heard the sound of 10,000 people simultaneously disappointed in you. She said, I did. I knew at that moment that it was over. She proclaimed in the rest of that interview, I know Jesus loves me, but nothing else is sure. Here is this fractured life of somebody who says, man, I disappeared from the public scene because I no longer had the ability to hold sway. Whitney was honest about it. She was concerned because people no longer thought that she was amazing. She had tried to prove once again that she was amazing, and she failed miserably. But it is a consistent concern. Counselors all the way around uh, Washington, D.C. have one major mantra. How do they help leaders who live constantly in fear of failure? This is what they were poking at. The religious mob is Exhibit A. This is how they made decisions. This is how they pushed forward their opinion. But Exhibit B, 
the political leaders. All right, we'll get away from those religious guys, right? Let's get to the really good guys. Political leaders in every generation, they're always the ones that help. 1960s, it's interesting. There's a, a picture that we have here of this pilot stone. Up until the 1960s, pilot was actually a source of debate whether or not he actually existed. The concern was he's such a prominent person in the story and his decisions are so final and it's so significant that Rome puts his stamp on the death of Christ. He must not be a real character. He's too wicked. He's too easy to hate. It's too easy to look at him and say, man, how does he make decisions? In 1960, they uncovered this stone. It was actually, uh, it's called the Pilate Stone. It's a monument dedication that was found in Caesarea and it says to the Emperor Tiberius from Pilate, Pontius Pilate, it actually gives his title, and it's such a rare name that there's no, dis, uh, no doubt that this is the same Pilate that we are talking about here in this passage. Dedicating this monument that uh, was significant in Caesarea to Tiberius, he was dedicating it to the, the Caesar, and he was a prominent enough figure that this monument and this dedication was accepted. It was a significant thing. According to church history, Pilate's actually a conflicted character. Three or four different stories develop about what happens to Pilate in the years that just follow the death of Christ. Some say that he went insane. Some say that within three years he was such a poor leader that Rome calls him home. We never hear from him again. In the Eastern uh, Ethiopian Orthodox Church, they actually have him listed as a saint. They say that he was so broken that he and his wife later would come to Christ. Other stories have him becoming conflicted and committing suicide on Pilate Mountain overlooking a, a lake up in Europe, and that he was buried in that place where his men finally had to carry him away because he relived that night over and over and over again. We don't know what ultimately happened to Pilate, but we do know that in this moment he was on the wrong side of truth. How did he and Herod make their decision? Something else that's interesting to note is that the process that they went through has not changed in 2,000 years from how our politicians today make decisions. To them, popular opinion meant more than justice. Popular opinion. Notice that in each place we see the press of the crowd, and even though they know there's no guilt in him, even though they know that there's nothing to be found to, to make him worthy of death, in each moment, popular opinion concerned them. They were like, well, we're not going to be seen as good leaders unless we follow what they're saying. Do you know that in the course of this next year, the average American will be presented with over 250 polls, public opinion polls, You'll be presented with 250 polls with the goal of hoping that knowing what other people think will sway your opinion, that you will fall in line with a crowd because others say it's true. Why 250 polls? Because it's so effective at swaying the masses that polling is still used today. J.B. Priestley said that public opinion polls are like children in a garden digging things up all the time to see how they are growing. Pretty sure way to destroy what's growing by digging at them in that way. Popular opinion meant more than justice. But a second thing that we see in their truth discovery process is that their truth-seeking was driven by self-interest. Verse 8 says, Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus. Very glad. Read in there. He's clapping his hands and he's rubbing them together and he's saying, Finally, finally, I get to see this magician. 
He had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. By the way, that's still the world today. Oh, if Jesus is really Jesus, why don't we see and just fill in the blank? Why don't we see this? Why don't we see that? Why can't we have this? Why can't we participate in these things? Why can't we uh, see this supernatural moment happen day after day after day? His self-interest was, I'm finally going to get an audience with the most popular guy out of Galilee. I'm finally going to get an audience with somebody from my region who really made a mark. In fact, Jesus said nothing. There was no miracle performed. Jesus doesn't sing and dance for somebody just to entertain them. Herod's disappointed. He investigates, but he still doesn't find anything wrong with him, even though they're shouting at the top of their lungs that they should have his head. All he was interested in is what would make him entertained or pleased, and when there was nothing there, he sends him on. Truth-seeking was driven by self-interest. I'm not going to seek the truth. There's nothing interesting here. Popular opinion meant more injustice, truth-seeking driven by self-interest, but also notice that they formed allegiances over what they were against, not what they were for. Verse 12 said, At this moment, both Pilate and Herod had come to the same conclusion and tried to move him on. It says, At this moment, Herod and Pilate became friends with one another on that very day, for before they had been enemies with each other. Why have they become friends? Well, man, we got everybody against us, and we both saw the truth, but we moved him on. We're against and fill in the blank. Therefore, we're friends with who? Their allegiance was around protecting each other's back. Protectionism, not around the truth. If we were to go back to that picture of uh, Nancy and Donald, once again, two controversial figures in our day and age, what would it take for them to become friends? Can you ever imagine that they would become friends? It was just as possible for Pilate and Herod to be friends back in the day. Just as unlikely. Just as surreal for the people around. All of a sudden, their friendship is cemented together because of what they were against. What were they against? The truth of Christ. They formed an allegiance over what they were against. And finally, they were willing to compromise any value, principles, or truth in order to maintain their reputation. Both Pilate and Herod knew what was true. They declared it multiple times, and they refused to follow through with truth. Instead, in order to maintain their reputation, they sent him to be crucified. C.S. Lewis said, A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Christ was so far above all of the fray. He still hasn't spoken. The truth is evident. It is as you say, he says. The truth is all there. Everything that you need to make a decision has been listed. But Pilate and Herod could not come to the truth. Now what's interesting is there's a statement in the middle here. He says, well, would you rather have me release for you Jesus, or would you want me to release for you Barabbas? And they shout out, Barabbas, give us Barabbas. It's interesting in the other synoptic gospels, uh, if you go back, the earliest manuscripts actually contain a different name in there alongside the name Barabbas. The statement is, would you rather give, do you want me to give you Jesus, the son of Joseph? Jesus, the son of God? 
Or do you want me to give you Jesus Barabbas? The name Barabbas actually means the son of a rabbi. Here is this one, the son of a rabbi who knew scriptures, who was an insurrectionist. He came in to proclaim himself to be the Messiah. He came in to win that with violence. When people were not with him, he killed them. He's leading an insurrection. He's causing all kinds of problems. He's drawing the wrong kind of attention from Rome. He had even killed some of his own people because they would not get in line. And they said, give us that Jesus instead of the Jesus of Nazareth. Would you rather me give you the insurrectionist? Would you rather give me a tyrant? You want me to give you a murderer? Or do you want the healer, the teacher, the leader, the Lord? Do you want the son of a rabbi or do you want the son of God? And the masses chose without even skipping a beat. They chose Barabbas. Give us this murderer. Give us the tyrant. By the way, in our day and age, we still pick people based on what strength or what harshness they can bring to the task rather than based on grace. They were willing to compromise their values. So what's the verdict? The result. The result of all of their truth-seeking is that the truth was in fact suppressed. The truth that was evident from the very beginning that Jesus was who he said he was, that the scriptures had proclaimed him, that he was the answering uh, Messiah, that was all suppressed. The result was that the mob mentality won the day. The angry mob had gathered together. They're shaking their fists, and they are the ones that were creating public policy. They were the ones that shaped the next direction, even though it was an unrighteous decision. And the result was that God was silent. God's silence throughout Scripture either means judgment or it is a preparation. You are either being judged or you're being prepared for a closer walk with him. In Psalm 62, anticipating this moment, the scripture says, my soul waits in silence for God only. From him is my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. My stronghold, I'll not be greatly shaken. How long will you assail a man that you might murder him, all of you? Like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence, they have counseled only to thrust him down from his high position. They delight in falsehood. They bless with their mouth, but inwardly they curse. And it says, Selah, stop and think about that. This is perfectly describing the scene that's right there. How long will God be silent until the right thing happens? Christ is crucified on our behalf. All of sin is washed away. God removes judgment through him, the one that we judged unworthy to lead us. We failed in our truth-seeking, but God would use it for good. The verdict is that Christ was condemned. Christ was condemned. But we still have an opportunity this morning to make a decision. If we go back to Barabbas, the question that I would have us consider at the very end, even though truth is quite often clouded by emotion, We have an opportunity today to make truth and make a decision for Christ, regardless of what the mob around us says. Will we choose uprising? Will we choose anger? Will we choose a mob mentality? Or will we choose Jesus and grace and truth that's perfected? What will we choose? 
Will we follow in the line of Barabbas? Will we follow in the line of murderous hearts? Or will we follow in the line of the Savior? What is before us right now is an opportunity today to decide whether or not we will actually follow Christ. Will you choose Jesus, though he is unpopular? Will you choose Jesus and truth, though it will put you on the opposite side of the angry mob? Will you choose Christ? That's what's before us this morning. And by the way, people come to that decision in the same way they have for 2,000 years. Quite often we are offended and overtaken by the voices of the mob that's around us. But Christ is still calling, still saying, it is the truth. You have everything you need for the decision. Will you follow me? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to be able to see that truth, to see that uh, still today, Christ is the one that we have to choose. The world is asking us to make a decision. Um, there are his close men. There are the religious people around that weren't concerned with Christ, but with only their position. And there were the politicians. All of them came out on the wrong side. All of them running away from Christ. All of them rejecting at an inopportune time, running away from the truth of Christ. And Christ silently, with all of the truth on his side, waiting for the verdict. Father, help us by the power of your spirit to choose differently than they did. Help us to choose Christ, to respond rightly, to see him for who he is. Father, help us in our own lives uh, to be passionately about Christ and not about our own will. Father, I do pray you'd set us free from the mob mentality and that you would cause us to focus on the truth of Christ filtered through grace. Father, help us to yield. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.